This is episode number 235, How to Make Better Decisions and Routines with Robin Conley Downs. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance life, expanding the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day. The perfection all or nothing thinking comparison path isn't a great one, but it's often the one we're on. But we can start walking a different direction with self-compassion and gratitude and flexible thinking, and we can end up getting different results. I'm so thankful that you guys are here today listening to this podcast. And recently I checked in on some of the podcast demographics just because we have some new sponsors coming on. And I saw that this podcast has been downloaded in 165 countries. So big shout out to all of you listening all over the world. Thank you so much for being part of this awesome community. I recently asked on my social media, primarily on my Instagram, which is Sonia Looney and the number one, and Twitter, I'm Sonia Looney on Twitter, what topics and what people you want to hear from on the podcast this year. And I've been doing this podcast for coming around the corner to four years. So there are many people and many topics that I've covered And I'm always interested to keep bringing you guys value because I do this for you. So if there's someone or something you're itching to hear about, feel free to reach out to me on one of those social platforms, or you can just go straight to my website, sonyalooney.com and contact me directly. And while you're on there, might as well sign up for my free weekly newsletter where I spend a lot of time doing research on one topic for the thought of the week. Last week, it was actually about being brave enough to suck at something new. So I'll let you think about that for a little bit. And I also put out the podcast, just in case you missed it, in your podcast app and a thought of the week to ponder. You can get that at sonyalooney.com slash newsletter. And I read every single one of your responses to those emails. I also have a free confidence worksheet that you get whenever you sign up for the newsletter. And that is directly from my Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy workbook that you get. I have a mindset course that I launched a few weeks ago called the Moxie and Grit Mindset Academy. And it's all about finding ways to optimize what goes on between your ears. And someone actually said to me, Sonia, I I am mentally tough. I don't need to work on mental toughness. And I thought that was really fascinating because... To me, that's sort of like saying, well, I'm already fit enough. I've ridden my bike a certain amount or I've ran a certain amount. Now I'm done and I don't need to do any more work so that I can get faster or better. And the same goes for your mind. So you can also check that out at sonyalooney.com and just look for Mindset Academy. And speaking of mindset and being brave enough to suck at something new, I've been sucking at something new lately and that thing is running. And I in the past have been actually a pretty good runner. And my expectations were really, really high when I started doing some running in my off season. But lately, things have been not going so well. I've been having these niggling injuries, and I just haven't been feeling very satisfied with my running training. And I have to take a little bit of time off. And just being able to have that mindset that this is part of the process and that it's okay to take some time off has been really helpful in just learning and helping others learn. And with that comes working more on strength and mobility. And as a cyclist, this is something that I am always trying to work on as a runner. This is definitely a big part of the coaching program that I'm in is doing a lot more of this mobility work. 
But as a cyclist, it's been hard for me to find things that I can actually do or want to actually do with mobility. And mobility is simply being able to have strength through an entire range of motion for a muscle or a joint. I recently discovered a company called DynamicCyclist.com, and I signed up for their seven-day free trial, and I was really impressed with their platform. And they are all about stretching and strength work for cyclists specifically, and they have all these different programs where it kind of holds your hand and helps you do things every single day. And a lot of times I haven't really liked mobility programs because it's decision overwhelm. I don't know what to choose. There's just too many things. Or I just don't want to spend all this time watching a video on how to do it. And I think that they did a really great job balancing out how to actually do these different strength and mobility routines and also how to deal with and prevent injuries. And if you're an athlete, injury is just something that's going to happen over time. So knowing what to do whenever you're in that vulnerable state is something that's really important. And that is another thing that I love about dynamic cyclists. Most cyclists have a lot of the same issues. And the program I'm working on right now is for pelvic tilt. And a lot of us kind of have our pelvis tilted so that our butt is kind of pointed up and back. And it's just part of the deal whenever you're sitting on a saddle all the time. So in this routine, it shows you different ways to start working on putting more mobility into your pelvis so that you don't have this forward tilt, which causes all these issues with hip flexors, makes your stomach stick out more, it makes your back hurt. So I've been enjoying that one. If you want to try their seven-day trial, go to dynamiccyclist.com. I reached out to them and wanted them to be a podcast sponsor because I think they're so awesome. And there is also a coupon code specifically for the Sonia Looney Show listeners, and that is my last name, Looney, in all caps, and the number 15. So Looney 15, you can do a seven-day free trial and get 15% off your subscription at dynamiccyclist.com, and that is also in the show notes. So let's get into today's guest. As you know, this podcast is all about how to be better every day. And this guest really fits the bill for everything that we love to listen to on this show. This guest is an amazing person. Her name is Robin Conley Downs. And she believes that perfection, all or none thinking and comparison is not a great path to be on. And many of us have gotten stuck in that path from time to time. And she is very adamant about self-compassion, gratitude, and flexible thinking. And she's written a book about it. Her book is called The Feel-Good Effect. It's about creating optimal wellness in your life with simple shifts. Her website, Real Food Whole Life, is home to all things health and wellness. And she uses simple science-backed strategies to help people cut through life's clutter and to uncover small shifts that create huge change. She believes in finding more calm, ease, and joy in your life right now. And how many of us want more calm, ease, and joy right now? She has her master's degree in education with an emphasis in behavior change, four years of public policy and health change at the doctoral level, and she taps into cutting-edge science and psychology, neuroscience, mindfulness, and habits. And I personally have spent a lot of time studying all of these similar and same topics And I personally am in a health coaching program at Vanderbilt University about behavior change. And the stuff that she talks about in the podcast and in her book are things that really work. In today's episode, you will learn how to make sustained change in your life, identifying thought patterns that hold you back, the problem with willpower, 
how to create a routine, especially if you hate routines, how to make big decisions in your life, and how to stop beating yourself up. And I think that all of these things are elements of positive change that we could all use from time to time. So let's get into it with Robin Conley Downs. Robin, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Congratulations on launching your book. Oh, thank you. It's really exciting. It came out September 1st, so it's been out in the world for a few months now, which is amazing to think about that. I actually just got an email today that we sold the book in the Vietnamese market. So it's like going around the world, which is really exciting. Nice. That's so cool. So how did you come up with a title? Because titles are kind of hard. Yes. And I am not, my background's in academics and research. So I think coming up with titles has not always been my strong suit, but I actually started uh, the Feel Good Effect podcast first. So I have a podcast called The Feel Good Effect. And I started that really with this idea of exploring the question, what does it really mean to be healthy? Because we talk about health and wellness all the time, but I wanted a chance to really explore that. Like, what does it mean to be healthy? What does it mean for each one of us to be healthy? And then as a community to be healthy. And through the podcast, I, you know, have had a lot of success with listeners who've tried the approach in their life and have seen a lot of success. So it was sort of a natural extension to write a book. And then I figured why mess with a good thing? (laughs) Since I already had a podcast, I didn't need to come up with a second name. So that's where that came from. Yeah. And I see that you have a master's degree in education with an emphasis in behavior change. So it sounds like a lot of this information comes from your academic background. It does. I spent about 20 years really studying how people make and sustain change in their lives. So at the individual level, I studied habit formation and behavior change in my master's program. And then I did four years at a doctoral level in a public policy. So more how do we change as communities of people. But the thing is about research and academics is a lot of that information isn't very accessible to people, normal people. So that was sort of why I started the website and the book and the podcast was to take what We know so much about what works, but a lot of times it's not very available. So I wanted to put it into a package that was easy, right, and accessible. What are the biggest barriers to behavior change? It's really two things, um, which I try to put the book into these sections. So the first barrier is mindset, and mindset gets used a lot. And the way that I define mindset is just the way the thought patterns in your brain because the way that you think gets you your habits and your actions, which gets results in your life. So many times it's our thought patterns that are standing in, way, in the way, and that's like less obvious. It's invisible because it's in our brains. And then the second piece is really using everything we know about habit formation to make um, it easier. So for example, we it really is pretty straightforward how to make a habit and keep a habit. But a lot of times we don't use those strategies because we think we just need to willpower or discipline our way through. So um, when you have those two things, mindset and habits, then you get eliminate a lot of barriers that most people have for change. So you said that you use some techniques that are out there for behavior change, mostly in the literature. And 
that a lot of times willpower and discipline are things that make it hard for us to make those changes. Mm -hmm. Well, they deplete. So that's what we know about willpower. And you might have listening, have had that experience where you feel like this idea of willpower is really just mental energy. And so you have, you have only a certain amount, so you can use it up. (laughs) And by the end of the day, that's why you might feel like you have no willpower by three o'clock in the afternoon. It's not because you're weak or a failure. It's because you've used it up. You've used the willpower up. So there's ways that you can kind of support yourself better so that you don't have to rely so much on willpower. And what are some ways to do that? Well, one of my favorite chapters in the book is about what I call a decision diet, which is just a way to reduce decision fatigue. So have you heard that term before, Sonia, decision fatigue? Oh, absolutely. And it's really pervasive in our modern culture that we make hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, really thousands of decisions in a day. And those decisions deplete our mental energy. So that's what's called decision fatigue. So one of the ways through that is to create what I call decision templates or to just decide ahead of time so that you're not making the same decisions over and over. So some really familiar examples of a decision template might be like a capsule wardrobe where you decide ahead of time what you're going to wear and everything goes together. And so you you know, it takes a little work up front, but you're not wasting time and energy deciding what to wear. Another example I use is with meal, like not meal, I don't meal plan, but I meal map. So I decide ahead of time what we're going to have on a Monday, for example, and we have pretty much the same thing every Monday. And I'm not wasting all this time thinking about what are we going to have? And when do I need to start making it? And will everyone eat it? All of those decisions are reduced by having a decision template. So some examples to reduce your decision fatigue are your wardrobe, picking a capsule wardrobe, and then also trying to figure out what you're going to eat so that whenever you open the fridge every single time, you don't have to think, okay, what's for lunch? What's for, what's for dinner? And getting everyone on the same page. Yeah. And it's so amazing to me, With even with food, we make on average 267 decisions about food a day, just food. And so when you think about that, that's just food. So then you add all like work and working out and um, relationships. It just is exponential. So if if you gave exactly wardrobe and food, really any place where you're finding that you're making decisions and you don't want to be spending so much energy, that's a great place to look at how you could reduce Yeah, it sounds like just having a a plan and an intention with how you want to spend your time or how you want to do things in advance might be really helpful for just avoiding that decision fatigue. Exactly. And what are areas in your life where you don't want to preload the gun, so to speak, by limiting your decisions? Like what about when people want to exercise their creativity? Well, interestingly, boundaries create freedom and creativity. So having some constraints is actually really good for creativity. So I don't know, do you have an example in your life, Sonia, where you feel like you don't, you would be feeling restricted by this idea? Uh, Not personally, because I'm somebody that really likes a schedule and a routine and, and boundaries and all those things. But I'm just trying to think of other people that are the opposite personality type that hate having a schedule that hate having a routine 
but maybe have sort of a rebel personality where they can't actually make themselves do something or can't decide what they want to do, but they can't make themselves have that routine or that boundary. Yeah. I love that. And I love that you consider that other perspective because there are many people that when I talk about like decision templates or the word routine is like triggering to them and routine or decision templates, it doesn't mean that you have to do the same thing exactly the same way every single day at the same time. It really is about giving you the anchors that you need so that you can have that flexibility so that you can have that creativity. So it might be that with going back to the food example, it feels too rigid for you to have like, you know, exactly the same meal every single Monday. But you certainly could then just have a list of recipes or meals that you make you know, like 10 meals, your go-tos that you just pick from that night. And you're still reducing your decisions, right? Because there's not a million to choose from. There's like 10, but those are your go-tos. So on the days that you're tired and you don't feel like messing around with it, you just have your go-tos. And then on days where like you might be someone that just loves cooking, going to the farmer's market, picking stuff out and letting the inspiration take you, then you do that on those days. So it's like finding, I would say like anchor points for yourself. Same thing with routines. I personally might do my routine at the same time and very similarly every day, but you could just have like three things that are your wellness actions that you take that you get in every day. But you don't do them necessarily, you do it whenever you can versus at a specific time of day. So I love that you address those people because I don't want people to think that well, wellness is not one size fits all. So it doesn't have to be the way I do it or some kind of rote regimented punishment. <laughs> but it does, for, I think for everyone, whether you're a rebel or whether you're an upholder or whatever you use to describe yourself, that you have a if you know what's important and you know how to get those in, then there's a lot of flexibility. As a side note, I love that you caught that I referenced Gretchen Rubin's yeah. um, tendencies. If anyone listening hasn't listened to The Four Tendencies or read the book by Gretchen Rubin, that book will change your life. <laughs> yes. I've had Gretchen on my podcast a couple times, and I feel like the those tendencies are so helpful, whether you're a rebel which you're right, the rebels are like really offended by the word routine. And they feel like that's me telling them what to do. But if you listen to if you read her book, or if you listen to her audiobook, what she says about rebels is, it's about you, it's about giving the choice back to the person. So it's not me telling you, you have to do a decision template, and it has to look this way. It's me saying, do you want to make fewer decisions? Do you want to stop wasting mental energy. If that's important to you, then there's some ways to do that. And it's really your choice, what you, how you want to do that. And I'm not telling you to do it. But if you talk about like obligers, which is I think half of people, those are people who need accountability, external accountability. So you could have decision templates with a friend or a partner or a roommate where you decide ahead of time, but then you have some external accountability so that you're not just trying to willpower you willpower through the decision template. And I guess this is going down even further along that line. Um, questioners are more internally motivated. So 
questioners might actually be making more of those decisions on their own and might be trying to white knuckle the willpower muscle. So what about for people who don't want to have external accountability? Should they continue just building a framework that works for them with a multitude of decisions, but not too many? Yeah, well, I think if we're going to use Gretchen Rubin's framework, she will say that if you're an obliger, if, which is about half of the population, they need external accountability. She'll say that don't fight it. Just accept that you need external accountability and find a way to get it. Whether that's having a coach, having a friend, having a partner, having some way that you're accountable out, outside of yourself. But for those questioners, I think, so you wanted to know, like, what, what would someone do that doesn't want to have, that wants to do it themselves? That wants to do it themselves, but without burning out on willpower. Because I, I fall into the upholder questioner quadrant, and mm -hmm. sometimes I will struggle because of willpower. Like, and I'll, I'll say, I'm going to do this thing and I'll do it for a while. I'll do it for a week, a month, maybe even six months, but eventually it gets the best of me and I'll stop doing it. Yeah, that's awesome. I love that you pinpointed that about yourself. I mean, one, it's knowing yourself. So all of these ways, whether it's the four tendencies or some of the personality traits I talk about in my book, Knowing yourself is step one. So you already know, okay, when I commit to something as an upholder, I usually stick with it, which can be great until it's not. <laughs> and so uh, another framework I use is this idea of should to good. And it's a simple question that you can ask yourself on a regular basis, whether you're doing something because it's a should or because it's a good and in your case, the should might, it might be your own internal should. You said, I'm going to commit to this. And now I should do this. For someone like an obliger, it might be an external should. But either way, without that good piece, you kind of can, it has a lot, it can lose its meaning and it might make it difficult to sustain. So for you, I would maybe on a quarterly basis, check in and ask, what is good for you? Like, is this routine or habit or practice still good? Is it meeting my needs? Is this contributing to how I want to feel and to my values? And it might just be that it ran its course, right? Like the thing that you committed to, you did what you said you were going to do and you don't need to do it anymore. But if it's something you do want to continue, recommitting based on how you how it's contributing to how you want to feel and to your values will give it a little more purpose and therefore I think help you with that sustainability and consistency piece. I love that you brought up values in relation to how we make decisions because a lot of times there are things that we need to have more of a broader spectrum like whenever people are thinking about changing their job well what job do I want to have and it's not as simple as picking what to eat or what to wear for that day. And knowing that you can go back to your values is something that can be really powerful when you're trying to make decisions and create new habits. Yes. And I add to that values piece how you want to feel. Because so many of us like optimize for productivity or for whatever we are trying to achieve in life. But when I have people do values exercises, I also have them do just an exercise of how do you want to feel in your life? Like, what are the three words? How do you want to feel? And then when you're making these decisions, whether it's about what you're eating for lunch or, like you said, a big career change, you can come back to your feel list 
your good list and identify like, is this aligned with how I want to feel? Sometimes that's enough to give you some real clarity about what decision would be best. I think that's such a great point. And also something that's been helpful for me whenever I'm making changes to my behavior, like a lot of the things that we crave are things we want right now because we think they're going to make us feel good right now. But if what I do is I'll ask myself, well, how am I going to feel in an hour if I make this decision? And that helps me make the right decision. Because if you think, well, I want this now, but I'm going to feel guilty later, or I'm going to feel like I didn't stick to my my plan later, then that's a great way to talk yourself out of making a bad decision in the moment. Yes. I call that the good gap. It's the distance between your choice and how it makes you feel in the long term. And so when I say like focus on how you want to feel and come back to that, I'm not I'm rarely talking about instant gratification. I'm rarely talking about, you know, this one moment. I'm talking about how does this make you feel in your life as you live it long term. So keeping in mind that good gap that like not what I want but what I need is <laughs> something to keep in mind because like oftentimes, you know, whatever it is in the moment, it might be good in that moment, but it actually isn't contributing to how you want to feel. So if you can keep that gap in mind, it can be really helpful. Yeah, I think you did a beautiful job in your book describing and simplifying some of these ideas and not simplifying in that it makes it unimportant but simplifying it in a way that makes it really easy to execute. And one of those examples is the circles for how to make decisions whenever there's trade-offs involved. So can you give people some advice on how to make a decision whenever you know that there's an opportunity cost between two options? Yeah. So I call it, it's actually a real word. It's called satisficing. It came from a um, Nobel Prize winner in in economics. (laughs) But Economics is often the the study of decision making. So there's some something we can learn from that. But like you said, let's just simplify it because most people do not need like the Nobel economic level <laughs> description of decision making. Who cares? What we need is like tactical ways to decide. So satisfying simply means that in a simple world, you can make perfect decisions but we don't live in a simple world. We live in a complex world. And in a complex world, you have to make imperfect decisions with trade-offs. And I think a lot of us get stuck in the idea that we can somehow make the perfect choice and have it all. And the moment that you step out of that, it's not true, it's a lie. And you step into the truth that every decision comes with trade-offs, pros and cons. And it is this sort of old idea of a pro and con list, but I use a Venn diagram or overlapping circles. So this is in the book. If you're a visual person, it's drawn out. But if you just imagine, you can draw two circles. And in one circle is your, so you, you're you going to make a decision and you need help with the decision. You draw a circle and that's your all in option. And you draw a second and that's your all out And it's like, what happens if you go all in and what happens if you go all out? So you, you mentioned a job change. So let's say you're thinking about quitting your job. What would happen if you fully quit? What are the trade-offs there? And what if you fully kept your job? And then what would happen if you overlap those circles and found some trade, like in the middle option, what would that look like? It's really just a cognitive strategy to work through what all the decisions, possibilities, 
what the trade-offs are, and then you pick what's good for you because it might be that quitting your job is the best. Or recently in 2020, maybe you lost the job and that wasn't your choice, but now you're looking for a new one. Again, it's not like me telling you what to do. It's helping you identify what your options are and then what is the best choice based on the full reality of the situation. That's so well described. And I think that yeah, just realizing that no decision is going to be perfect. Like I think a lot of times people don't make a decision because they're afraid they're going to make the wrong one. Yes. And you know what? Not making a decision is making a decision. So, I mean, it's true. So no matter what, you're making a choice. So if you're one of those people that gets stuck trying to make the perfect one, this activity or exercise might be really helpful. And I highly recommend to write it down whether you get the book or not, there is neurological science about writing things out that helps to see clearly. Even though you can think this through in your brain, try writing it down and see what a difference that makes to see it on paper. And you might even notice that when you write it out, you realize that you left some things off in the trade-offs, you know, or you might notice that like one of these things matters to me a lot more, you know, and then I feel confident to make that choice and to leave the, and to know that there's going to be some downsides to it. And I accept those because I am, I'm gaining this other thing that's really important to me. I love that. Thank you for, for going, <laughs> going there. I want to talk about the mindset loops that you have in your book. And specifically, I want to talk about the striving mindset versus the feel good mindset. Yes. So that's one of my favorite parts of the work and the book, because as I mentioned before, we need two things to make long-term change. And one of them is mindset. Now, mindset's one of those things that gets thrown around a lot. And it means many different things to different people. But for me, it's a pretty basic science principle of how our brain works. And it's really the way that you think. And it's these, I call them thought patterns. So I know that I'm getting in the weeds here, but I'll, I'll make it clear. I'll give you an example. And then I'll tell you about the two kinds So imagine that you're in a field of snow, fresh laid snow. And of course, you could walk any direction, right? There's no path. It's pure white snow. But you start just walking straight and you start to carve a path through the snow. And as the snow gets sort of packed down and icy, now there's one path. And that's the path you keep walking because it's already made for you. Now, at any point, you could walk any different direction but you don't because that's the path of least resistance. And that's exactly what happens in our brain. Literally, it's called, (laughs) if you've ever heard that saying neurons that fire together, wire together. (laughs) Yeah, it's neuroplasticity. So we have these paths in our brain, and they get us to certain choices and results. Same thing as snow. But at any point, you could walk a different direction. Because There's infinite pathways that you could take. So if you start walking a different way, it might feel harder at first, but eventually that way will become automatic. So for many of us, we have a path in our brain, and that's what I call the striving mindset, which is perfectionism, all or nothing thinking, and comparison. And so those aren't like, they're not personality types. They're not like Gretchen Rubin's framework. They're really ways of thinking that through our research we found are the most common paths that people take that get them that don't take them where they want to go. 
And then the way out of that is the feel good mindset, which is self-compassion and gratitude and flexible thinking. So those are new ways of thinking for many of us. But as you practice them, you get better at it and you form a new path and you get different results. So sometimes when we talk about how our brains work, it gets a little bit, I don't know, it's like, what are you even talking about? (laughs) But hopefully that snow example is helpful to think about, you know, the professional or nothing thinking comparison path isn't a great one, but it's often the one we're on. But we can start walking a different direction with self-compassion and gratitude and flexible thinking, and we could end up getting different results. Yeah, that definitely isn't um, too far in the weeds for this audience because people okay, are really, really love this stuff. It's something that I talk about and write about. I'm really passionate about a lot of the same things that you are. So I'm that's why I'm really excited about this interview. <laughs> so I think something that's actually interesting is that you can shift your mindset so that you are more focused on self-compassion, gratitude, and flexible thinking. But that doesn't mean that you don't ever get caught up in comparison or in perfectionism. So how come that path is still there even after you've basically worn down another path? Well, for most of us, we practice that path for, I'm 40, for example, I practiced that path for about 38 years. And so I am always working on my other path. And no matter how long I work on it, that other path is still there. But I will say that it, literally with the snow example, like as I go along, the other path starts to become more and more automatic. And I am very much faster at catching myself in the moment, my brain in the moment when I start stepping onto the old path and I can very quickly step onto the other one. So it's really good though to know that the goal isn't perfect. <laughs> We're not trying to never have a negative thought, never be self-critical, never compare, never, you know, have those all or nothing moments. Those will always be there. The um, magic it's, I mean, magic's kind of a funny word to use here, but like, I really, it is so incredible because these practices, this shift is free. You know, you can obviously buy my book, you can get it at a library. Like these, these tools are so accessible and we're not trying to eliminate the old we're trying to form the new and the more that you form the new the easier that that becomes to the point where really like most of the time for me it's the feel-good mindset is like my default now and I still go back sometimes but it's it doesn't feel comfortable for me anymore Sonia it doesn't feel as comfortable in the in the striving as it does in the feel-good Yeah. And I also think that it's important for people to realize that you can still be a striver and feel good at the same time. You've outlined how to do this with proper ways to goal set and things like that. So if people are listening, they're like, well, I like striving. I like being someone who tries to achieve things like you can still do that, but without getting stuck in the pathway of perfectionism, all or none thinking in comparison. Yes. And I'm glad you point that out as someone who I get, I'm guessing is a high achiever. (laughs) (laughs) yourself, you know, as someone who's learned self-compassion, gratitude, and flexible thinking, I published like a best-selling book with a top publisher. I have a top 50 podcast. I have like a really successful business. And I don't say those things to brag because who who really cares about that? (laughs) Why I say it is because 
people think that when they start to practice self-compassion, when they start to practice mindfulness, when they start to practice flexible thinking, that it means that they're taking the easy way out, that it means that they're giving up, that they're a quitter, or that they're selfish. And the research could not be in more conflict with that. Like the truth is, when you learn to think this other way, when you learn to practice self-kindness, for example, you're more likely research. There's over a thousand research articles on the power of self-compassion. You are more likely to stick with your goals and you're more likely to come back to them if something goes wrong. So if you hit a roadblock or something goes off the rails in your life, people with self-compassion are more likely to come back and to succeed. They're also more productive and they're also more compassionate with other people. So I like to share the science on that because I do think high achievers are so committed and addicted to the striving mindset that they worry that if they leave the mindset, they'll leave their success. And really the opposite is true. Thanks for clarifying that. Well, as a striver myself, I like to share that I was the person who would roll my eyes the first and the hardest at the idea of being kind to myself. Um, But I really some of those things with the podcast and the book, those are only possible through the shift in mindset because I just would have been so hard on myself that I couldn't release things into the world in the way that I can now. Yeah. I mean, if you take if you take your book and your podcast as an example, like if you sat around all day comparing your podcast to every other podcast out there and only publishing um, an episode, if you thought it was perfect and having all or none mentality, you just you would never do anything. You'd never be able to. You'd be so paralyzed by being afraid of of having this thing come out and having it not be at this at this compared level or at this perfect level that you just would never do it. And so many people get stuck in that in that scenario in their life where they're like, well, it's not going to be perfect or it's not going to be as good as so-and-so, so I'm not even going to try. It's so common. It's so common. When I first started my podcast, we was recording my intros and I would record it and I'd listen to it and I'd delete it. And I did that like 30 times <laughs> pathologically because first of all, listening to anyone who's listened to themselves for the first time, it's very like it's excruciating to listen to your own voice, but I just, I knew it wasn't as good as I wanted it to be, but I also knew that that's the best I could do at that moment. And it was literally through my own practice of the feel good mindset that I was able to put it out. Now, to be clear, I didn't put out like a piece of garbage. I did the best I could, but for me, the best I could wasn't good enough, but I did it anyway with kindness to myself. And there's, that is the only way that I still have. I'm on like almost 200 episodes, you know, close to four years because of the practices, because of the feel good effect mindset, because not only has it helped me continue, but also to enjoy the process because without joy, I I would have probably stopped, but also why would I want to do something that sucks? Yeah. And you mentioned that you did your best on that day. And that applies to so many things like I'm a professional cyclist, and most of the people listening to this are endurance athletes, um, whether they're recreational or competitive. But a lot of times, our best on the day, it might not be the best that we've ever done in our entire lives. And it certainly isn't going to be the best that we're ever going to be, because the more we work at something, the better we get at it. So like understanding that the process is, yeah, I'm going to do my best today, and my best another day might be different, or it might be even better. Yes. And there are some studies with 
endurance athletes on self-compassion. I wish that there were more because I think that professional and endurance athletes usually fall into two camps. They're either people who have been so (laughs) traumatized by coaches who like beat them up mentally that they think that's the only way to go. That's a really hard way to can like if you want to be a long, like lifelong endurance athlete, most find that they can't sustain that level of mental flagellation. Athletes that can embrace a self-compassionate, flexible, grateful mindset typically can endure longer into their careers. And I I think that word kindness is not the one that we use a lot when it comes to competitive sport. But kindness sometimes can mean pushing really hard. I mean, I'm sure, Sonia, there's some days on your bike that you you don't feel like it, but you actually know the kindest thing would be to push hard that day. So it doesn't always mean that you're like laying on the couch, you know, watching Netflix. It really means that loop in your mind of knowing like what's the kindest choice and how can I do this in a way that shows myself compassion so that I can do this for a long time. Because I think most most athletes I know, they want to be doing this in five and 10 and 20 and 30 years from now. Yeah. And something else that I think is really fascinating is that just doing hard things in your life, whether it be an endurance sport, whether it be starting your own business, doing these hard things in your life are what teach you how to have self-compassion and flexibility. And it isn't until you put yourself in the pressure cooker that you actually might be able to realize your patterns and then you have an opportunity to practice and get better or the opposite happens, you end up quitting. Yes. And you know, one of the driving forces for me in my career is to help people not quit, especially when it's something that you really care about. So if it, sometimes the thing that you need to do is take care of your physical body so that you don't get so injured that you can't keep going. And sometimes it's taking care of your mental body, you know, your mental self and figuring out ways to repair there so that you can keep going. So we've we've thrown around the word self-compassion a lot and it was several it was a couple of years ago but I actually was able to have Dr. Kristen Neff on the show about self-compassion but I'd love to hear your ways or the tips that you give to people in order to have more self-compassion especially whenever they're in this striving mindset. Yes, I love Kristen. She's been on my show. I think awesome. She's the most brilliant, least recognized person out there right now, like in terms of her contribution and the research she's doing when it comes to self-compassion. So some really basic practices. The one that I use the most, which comes from her research, is to actively ask what you would say to a friend or a loved one when talking to yourself. So what we know in the research about self-compassion is we're much better at showing compassion for people in our inner circle, like our children, our partners, even our pets, than we are to ourselves. And so if I were to say, you know, Sonia, when you, you know, you're having a bad day and things aren't going, you made a big mistake or you're not pushing the way that you want to, what would you say to your best friend? And then in that same voice, say it to yourself even if it feels ridiculous at first, because I'm one of those people that I was like, oh, no, 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 that's, that's not happening. (laughs) But then when I started paying attention to how my thought patterns were occurring, or how I was narrating in my own head, 
I realized that I was being a real bully to myself. And some people don't call it that. They don't say negative self-talk or inner critic. What they say is that they're being a realist. And I that's what I said. Like, I'm not being critical. I'm being real. But really, I was being really, really harsh on myself. Unrealistic expectations that I was never meeting. And um, the other part about self-compassion is um, and perfectionism is mistake avoidance. So I was either trying to not make mistakes or when I did make mistakes really harsh. So instead of that, now when I'm either trying to avoid a mistake or making a mistake or having unrealistic expectations, I just say, what would I say to my partner or my daughter? And, what, and then say that to myself. Yeah. And I'm sure that you even, I mean, I'm the same way. Like I try not to make mistakes, but mistakes are part of learning. They're they're not a sidestep of the path. Like mistakes are the path. You have to make mistakes in order to get better. But at the same time, you want to avoid making mistakes as much as possible. So it's kind of a, a delicate dance between avoiding mistakes and avoiding being careless and then also embracing the mistakes whenever you make them. Yeah. And I think you know who you are if you're someone, you know, there are some people that are a little more just like kind of, what is it, ready, shoot, aim. People who just, <laughs> they they aren't that worried about making mistakes. So for them, the perfectionist like way of thinking isn't that relevant to them. So they might need self-compassion for something else. But for my high achievers, usually you're not, your issue isn't like making careless mistakes. Your issue is beating yourself up when you make one or truly holding yourself back from doing things where you might have to make mistakes at the beginning, being a beginner at something. And so kind of depending where you are in the spectrum, you might need to employ self-compassion differently. But I really think of it like, you know, if we're talking to cyclists, you have like a repair kit for your bike and you might pull one thing out or another, depending on what's going wrong on with your bike. Same thing with your mental health and your mindset is like, if you're having, if you find that the thing that's causing you a problem is mistake avoidance, or you're making a, you're feeling awful when you do make a mistake, you employ self-compassion. And that is like a bomb that helps you to keep going. So knowing which side you're on is helpful too. Yeah. It sounds like Number one, being aware of your thoughts. And then number yes. two, knowing yourself are things that are sort of a prerequisite um, to move forward with some of these things. Yes. And I find that the one of the biggest challenges of my work is it sounds like you and your audience are already there, but most people have never thought about their thoughts ever. And so even trying to get people there is sometimes a pretty big hurdle. But if you're already there, then this is sort of refining it and helping you identify like specific blocks and then helping you to flip the script or make the tweak so that you have a different option. Yeah. And I think something else that can be really challenging is people that aren't honest with themselves. Like there are, there are the people out there who have read the books and they're like, yeah, I'm doing the work, but you can see that they're not being honest with themselves because they're afraid to admit something to themselves. So what about that type of person? I think you want to, two things. One, are you creating any pause in your life or space in your life to actually ask the question? And some of us fill all of our time to the extent that we can't even think about that. So like we can't even go on a ride without listening to music or a podcast, or we can't even be in the shower without listening to something. So part of it is, are you creating any space to ask that question? 
you know, do you think that that's an issue for some people? Oh, yeah, for sure. I think that um, a lot of people are afraid to be alone with their thoughts. But I also think the other side of the coin, though, is that it's hard to take responsibility for certain things in your life that you don't like because it requires being humble and it requires sort of not being afraid of this ability to make change. Like if you think you're never going to be able to make change or you just are afraid to say, yeah, like maybe I, I am making mistakes. It's it's hard to actually look yourself in the mirror sometimes and take that responsibility. And I think self-compassion can help with that because you can take responsibility without shame and blame. So having like a little bit of a cushion there, I think can help. But the other thing is just like we're, we're very good at identifying physical limitations in our own body and then compensating. But when it comes to the way we think, we're often not as good at, at that. And so then we kind of ignore it. And like you said, maybe not take the responsibility that we need to take. So what we were saying a couple minutes ago about being really you know, honest about how you're thinking and to, to say like, is this, is this taking me on the path I want to go? Or are there some things that are happening with mindset that are not, you know, that are limiting me just like I would be able to acknowledge a physical limitation. It's looking at the whole, it's a holistic picture and it's a little bit, it is a little more difficult to do when it comes to what's happening in your brain. But I would argue all that more powerful because it's sort of an untapped resource that you have. I love that. Um, to wrap it up, I just want to ask about all or none thinking because I'll give an example that the audience can probably really relate with is, oh, I need to do a two-hour bike ride, but something happened and now I don't have time to do a two-hour bike ride, so I'm just not going to do anything at all. How do you yeah. overcome that? <laughs> This is so common, all or nothing thinking when it comes to exercise or training. And it's amazing to me, though, that even though this is so common, that you would do nothing rather than two hours, because then you did nothing. And so I just encourage you to catch yourself in that moment and ask yourself, like, what are you thinking counts? And if only two hours counts, you're robbing yourself of the opportunity to train consistently with shorter workouts. And I, I'm guessing I'm not a cyclist. I mean, I have my spin bike, but <laughs> I'm nothing like you guys. Hey, if you have a spin bike, you are a cyclist. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> but I'm guessing that there is some benefit to doing shorter speed workouts, for example, or, you know, weight training kind of workout. So I just think about the end of your week, the end of seven days, the end of 30 days, if you have the opportunity to do a two hour ride and you don't do it. And instead you did an hour and every time you, or you did 30 minutes by the end of the month, all of those days that would have a zero on them now have 30 minutes or 60 minutes. And so you could end up at the same number of mileage at the same mileage or the same hours at the end of the month. If you took that approach that like every minute counts rather than you can only do it if you get that two hour ride in. Yeah. And when it comes to doing big things, it happens by doing something one brick at a time, one step at a time. And that 1% better every day is what compounds into making something really a lot bigger. And that's how we achieve things is one step at the one step at a time. It is. And if I could get people to change you know, anything about their thinking, that's probably the one that every 
thing counts. Every minute counts. And the more that you can flex that muscle and practice that way of thinking, you'll see that your whole world opens up. Because I oh, I would love for everyone to get a two-hour ride every day, but there are so many days that that's not possible for whatever reason, unless you know, you're know you fully professional. And even then, there's probably some days when that doesn't happen. So when you open up your world to like everything counts and how can I make this work today, you'll see how not only is the process more enjoyable, but also you might end up getting where you want to go faster. Yeah. And that goes right back to what you were just saying about your podcast episode. It's I'm going to do my best with what I have for today. And that applies to pretty much everything. It does. It does. And it keeps us from like getting in those blocks because sometimes people miss that two hour ride. And then because of that, the next day they don't get in a ride because they missed the day before. And that turns into a whole site downward spiral. So it's like, how can you keep yourself in the game and doing what you can with what you have right now, which really like creates the feel good effect in your life. And at the end of your book, you have the feel good challenge. Can you explain briefly what that is and then give somebody one step to move forward with that? Yeah. So in the feel good mindset, there's three parts, which I mentioned, which is uh, self-compassion, flexible thinking and gratitude. So I encourage people to pick one to start with, just because, again, small shifts, big change. You don't need to do all of this all at once. And in fact, from a behavioral perspective, trying to change everything all at once typically doesn't work very well. So if you, you know, there's a quiz in the book, but even if you're just listening, you're not going to get the book. You could think about which mindset is most resonant to you, whether it's self-compassion, which is the antidote to perfectionism. Um, whether it's flexible thinking, which is the antidote to all or nothing thinking, which we just talked about, or gratitude, which is the antidote to comparison. So if one of those speaks to you the most, you could pick one and then pick one practice. So you're probably very familiar with gratitude practices. But for example, writing three things you're grateful for at the end of the day, flexible thinking, we kind of touched on, you know, practicing that what can I find that's in the middle if I can't do all or nothing? And then that self-compassion that we practice that we already talked about. And picking one time of day to practice those that mindset. So it's like having a routine, a mindset routine, which is a little different than a typical like wellness routine, can really start to help you with that mind with those mindset shifts. Yeah, I like that you said making it a routine and then picking a time of day to do it because you just might not do it if you don't pick a time. Especially with the mindset stuff, it's like it's less hard. It's harder to do than like I'm going to drink more water and then you just drink. Look at how much water you've drank. right? (laughs) So I find if people don't have a set time of day, it does. Again, if you're a uh, rebel, you don't have to do it at a certain time, exactly (laughs) the same time. It's up to you. But if you know that on a daily basis, you want to practice it and you do pick like a time and a place to do it, you'll find that that shift happens faster and that you'll be able to create that new pathway faster because you're doing it on a regular basis. Awesome. Well, where's the best place for people to find you and all of you have a bunch of free downloads too. Where's the best place for people to find that? So realfoodholelife.com has the resources you mentioned and then all of the all the places. So I'm Real Food Whole Life on Instagram. If you listen, I love to hear where people come from. And then I have the Feel Good Effect podcast and the book, which is everywhere books are sold and also an audiobook. 
Yeah. And you've had some really great guests on your podcast and there's a lot of overlap with this podcast. So people I think would really enjoy it. Yeah. I love your questions too. It sounds like we kind of have like a science slash mind (laughs) (laughs) mindset interest. So yes, I love having new listeners come over. And even if you just sourced out some of the guests that you've, Sony, that you've had that I always love listening to the same person on a couple different podcasts because you usually get like a much stronger sense of who they really are. So definitely invite you to do that. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. And again, congrats on all of the hard work that you've done and all the lives that you're changing. Thank you so much for having me. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Make sure to check out Robin's book and her podcast. You can go to sonyalooney.com slash podcasts for complete show notes and links to everything that we talked about. And if you're enjoying this podcast, please make sure you rate and subscribe. That helps a lot of other people find the show. And speaking of those stats I was looking into, I noticed that about 25% of people that listen to the show are not subscribed. So make sure you hit that button so you don't miss out on the amazing guests that come on this podcast. I hope you have an amazing week and I'm with you on this journey of personal growth, adventure, and our mission to be better every day.